Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to Black Women Amplified, the podcast. Your host, Monica Wisdom Tyson, brings you downloadable conversations that matter to women around the globe. We discuss all things black girl magic, amplify our voices, and transform our challenges into triumphs. Monica calls on her league of extraordinary women to push our boundaries, share their expertise, and stories of personal transformation. Welcome your host of Black Women Amplified, Monica Wisdom Tyson. Hello, Black Women Amplified family. It is your girl, Monica Wisdom, and I am so excited that you're here with us today. We have a very special guest in the house, and I'm so excited to share her with you, the incomparable Tracy Moore. Tracy Moore is an icon amongst icons in the world of film, television, hip-hop, and beyond. She has excelled as a producer, director, celebrity acting coach, casting director, and so much more. She brings her vision, passion to every opportunity, truly elevating everything she touches. Let me tell you, Tracy's gifts are remarkable. Her television show, Inside the Black Box, is co-produced with Joe Morton, yes, Papa Pope himself. It is a groundbreaking masterpiece that explores the depths of acting to elevate budding actors to new heights of greatness. No wonder she is considered a queen in the industry. Tracy has devoted her life to building stages for artistic expression, providing countless opportunities for people to showcase their talents. Not only did she discover Dave Chappelle, cast shows for MTV, but she helped hip-hop legends shift into the worlds of television and film, including Busta Rhymes, Eve, Cardi B, and so many others. We are deeply honored to have her join us on the Black Women Amplified podcast for a conversation about her remarkable journey all seen through the lens of grace, integrity, and love. Please welcome the amazing creator of The Spirited Actor and the creator and co-producer of Inside the Black Box, the inspiring, the talented queen, Tracy Moore. Miss Tracy Moore, I am so excited that you're here with us today. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Your career is phenomenal. In some ways, it must feel like you're just beginning. I mean, from celebrity acting coach to producer, director, to a TV show host, TV show that I absolutely love, an author and a speaker. How do you navigate through it all? Well, I feel that I landed here in 1983 in New York City. I'm from, born and raised in San Francisco, California. And it was a really great time because it was on the cusp of rap. And culturally, you know, you had Keith Haring. I used to run into Madonna in the Palladium Club all the time. Like, New York was very, very rich. And for someone coming from California, 21, I was like, oh, my God, 
you know, there's like no boundaries, right? I felt like if I stayed in California, I would have gotten married, had 2.5 kids, went on vacation, and that's okay, but that wasn't what was in my heart. And that's why I left. And so to come to a place that was so expressive and so free and in my opinion, non-judgmental in terms of who you were, you know, because it's a potpourri of characters here. I had a different mindset. I had a mindset that I could do anything that I put my mind to. There was no fear that was instilled in me, even though I only knew two people here. There was just this desire and passion to just create. And that was my mindset when I got here. And then I kept myself open. You know, I wanted to direct right away in theater specifically. And then that didn't happen. So it's like, you know, you have to, especially in the entertainment business, be able to pivot. So I wanted to make sure that I knew every aspect of filmmaking so that Maybe sometimes I want to direct, maybe sometimes I want to cast, maybe sometimes I want to coach and have choices rather than that cliche of master of whatever that is, because there's no limit in terms of creativity and your talent. And, you know, okay, you can only act when I worked with, you know, as a celebrity acting coach, you know, especially musical artists, you know, they're taking away our roles. Well, it's been going on since Sammy Davis, honestly, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? And I also feel like that I come from a place of nothing is impossible. I literally remembered yesterday when I got, when I was on the plane here coming to New York in 83 and I was like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do it. And I kept saying it like over and over and over again. And I felt like I was well armed when I got off the plane, but then, you know, I mean, New York, I grew up in New York, like I started and began my life in San Francisco, but the root of who I am, it all comes from New York. So let's go back before you hopped on that plane to New York. What is the village that raised you? What was that like in being raised in San Francisco? Because it's one of my favorite cities. It's also a rich, vibrant place. Yeah. With a lot of culture and a lot of movement starting, I'm thinking of Angela Davis and her sister, the Black Panthers. Like you come out of that and then you take that to New York. So what was that environment like in San Francisco for you? Well, for the first 12 years, my parents were married and then they divorced. And I have a brother who's two years younger than me and a brother that's six years I mean, two years older and then six years younger. So I'm the middle only girl. And that was always just those dynamics alone, just the competition aspect. It's like growing up in the late 60s and just my brothers always, you know, who's stronger? Who's this? So I'm always so I feel like that was instilled in me in a very early age, just being around two brothers. And then when you say Angela Davis, like I also lived 10 blocks away from where Patty Hearst was being held captive. My school was a couple of blocks away from Jim Jones's church. And I had friends and family members who went and my dad's best friend's family perished over in Guyana. And so there's a lot of history that I grew up with as well. And especially Black Panthers, like I was six years old 
And I remember in first grade and the first day and they're like, okay, let's sing the national anthem. And I was like, lift every voice. And they were like, (laughs) wrong song. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So that was my environment. (laughs) Well, that had to build a richness inside of you that gave you the strength to deal with New York in the 80s. I was a little kid, but I, I've seen the videos and all this because I'm intrigued by it, that whole world of Studio 54. Ooh, yes. <laughs> and the disco and the beginnings of hip hop and all the things happening at the same time. So you get off the plane in New York. What do you see when you step onto the street? Oh, my God. The Barney Miller TV show, Taxi. Everything that I grew up with in terms of New York, Mary Tyler Moore, even though it was New York, it was still winter. Um, Just like, you know, this is the epitome of what my dreams were in terms of leaving San Francisco, coming to New York and being this Broadway director. That was the goal. And there were no, I saw no obstacles in getting there. And then as we're driving through beautiful, like coming from uh, LaGuardia Airport into going to Harlem, 148th Street in Amsterdam, driving through and downtown, midtown, you know, uptown Central Park. And then we get to Harlem and the brownstones, the windows are blown out. You're talking about the very beginnings of crack. Like it just, it was so sad, but I was still determined. I remember getting out the taxi and very, and as we're going up like these burnt out buildings, I remember saying to myself, the neighborhood has changed. I can't possibly be living here, (laughs) right? And here my two roommates are standing in front of a brownstone with big Kool-Aid smiles like, Jay-Zay! And I'm like, oh my God, I'm living here. And then going into the building and my room had two windows and I remember opening the window and looking out and it was if that's where people threw their trash, like out the window in the back. And I was like, oh no, oh my God, I, you know, San Francisco's clean, you know, or, you know, you, you feel guilty throwing a piece of paper on the ground. <laughs> and, you know, so I was like, oh my God. And my rent was $95. It was three of us a month. I got a job as soon as I got off the plane at Bon Marche. It was a furniture store in the village. And, you know, I just up and started. And then my roommate was being managed by Russell Simmons at the time as a singer. And my other roommate was dancing with Alvin Ailey. So I went to the studio with her and I met Russell's partner at the time and ended up dating him, getting married. We share a daughter together. Now, wait a minute. Don't, uh-uh. You can't rush through that. <laughs> That's no, ma'am. A whole other story. no, ma'am. Okay, okay. Retract. <laughs> we either can retract or just go a little bit deeper. Not say what. So <laughs> my roommate, after I got my job, because they worked, um, Kevin and Annette, they worked at Bon Marche, and they convinced the manager to hire me. So we left there to go to Green Street Studio, beautiful studio in Soho, and. I walk in the studio with her and Run DMC is sitting on the couch in their Adidas. She introduced me to them. And I can't remember who said, I think it was Run who said it, but he was like, um, oh, so you're from California, you know, what's rap? And I said, Sugar Hill Gang. And they laughed at me, laughed. 
shamed me. And I was like, okay. And then run, they all got up and they were like, it's like that. And that's the way. <laughs> oh. And I was like, oh my God, so aggressive. <laughs> I was like, yo. And you know, Monica, you know what's crazy today? Uh-huh. I've been coaching Vanessa Simmons for like 12 years as an actress. Oh, wow. Her and my daughter are best friends. They both have daughters who are friends and they just, you know, Vanessa's on the East coast. I mean, West coast, but that's what I think. Like every time I tell that story, it just freaks me out. Like I had no idea, you know, Vanessa wasn't even in the picture at the time, but how crazy I'm coaching Run's daughter. (laughs) Crazy to me. So, um, I'm going to give you the full story because this is the truth. So I, we're in the studio. I leave them. Orange Juice Jones is in the studio. Curtis Blow and Full Force. So I was sitting in the studio. Full Force's manager, this guy Steve, came up to me. And Boleg and Lou walked up and he asked us a question. And he said, whoever answers the question right has to take the person to dinner. And I answered right. Steve took me to dinner and we were together for seven years. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the raw, raw beginnings of hip hop. Oh, I can. I mean, <laughs> listen, one story that is so funny to me. Steve was Jewish. He passed when Ray was 17. He had lymphoma. But he was, I mean, mad swag. Him and Boleg and Lou together were just a phenomenal team and all of full force and Lisa, Lisa, but he just believed in these groups. I saw the inception of Lisa, Lisa and cult jam. UTFO was the first group that took off Cheryl, Pepsi, Riley. And then eventually he started working with snow, but he would, there were clubs around like fever, dance interior. So UTFO would perform Roxanne, Roxanne at these clubs and the clubs would pay them from the cover. So they would come home with bags of crinkled $5 bills, $10 bills. They would sit in a circle and divvy it out. Right. And then there was this wooden, you know, like a plate, a little skinny plate on our floor, right. That he opened up and that's where he would put the money. Oh my. <laughs> and one day they were all at the house and I was like, banks, what about banks? <laughs> they don't do banks. <laughs> What's oh a bank? God, the man is not going to know. Oh my God. It was hilarious because, you know, I mean, back in 1985, 86, you're talking like 10 grand, you know, five grand a show, 10 grand a show. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money, you know, and, and cash. Yeah. Cash. So I was like, every, like, no, you guys come in with brown paper bags full of money. It doesn't look right. doesn't feel right. I need you to go to a bank and deposit. So culturally, how did you adjust from the West coast to the East coast? Cause it seems completely different. It was, I think a part of me, Felt like it was more important for me to maintain my Tracyism as opposed to convert and change and simulate what was going on here. Because, you know, the 80s was very strong with cocaine. So, you know, I would go to these clubs, you know, where UTFO was performing or Full Force was performing. Like, you know, I mean, Studio 54, we've heard of all the stories. So, you know, I've, I've seen a lot, 
but I did not say at one point, oh, I need to simulate and be like these girls here to be cool or accepted or anything. I was like, okay, well, individually, that's just who they are. And the thing is, is that every time I was around New Yorkers, which were mostly Steve's friends at the time, they, I already stood out. Like I didn't even have to do anything. (laughs) They were just like, you're not from here, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that would make me so proud. I'd be like, no, I'm not. (laughs) San Francisco, California. I remember when I started going to New York in the nineties because my brother lived there and I'm, I'm from St. Louis. Mm. So back then I had a real Midwestern accent. They were like, do you live on a farm? Wow. Wow. (laughs) Say something. Say like I was like I was from France. Say something. Yeah. Say this. Talk, talk. (laughs) Now move around. Jump around. (laughs) No, but for real. And that was important to me. That was really important that like I never felt like I had to change or wanted to change. It was more about becoming a better person than who I was. So where did that come from, that that stability within yourself to be yourself? Because that is something that we as Black women struggle with. Like, who are we? How do we define ourselves? What are our values? And how can we not code switch to fit in? And especially if we're always the only person of color in the room or very few and those type of situations I've been in, I have to say, really, honestly, I have to say when I was six years old, and this is something I share a lot in my classes because it's important for us to understand, you know, human and experiences, right? So I talk about this because I think this is something very interesting about myself, but my brothers and I, we grew up in the same household. We grew up with the same parents. My brothers call my mother and father, pops and mom. I have, since six years old, called my mother and father, Shirley and James. Oh, wow. I I had to stop one second. My mother's middle name is Shirley, and my dad's name was James. Oh, my God. (laughs) See? We're cousins. I call those God smiles when God, because that's not a coincidence. That's God smile. See? We family. (laughs) (laughs) So what happened was... I, nobody at six years old, prior to my grandmother, my dad's mother, big mama visiting us, nobody had ever corrected me. So I was sitting at the table. My grandmother came and she was like six, four size 13 shoe. And she was sitting at the table and she was like, we were eating. And I said, James, can I get 10 cents for candy after school? And Shirley, can I have some more bacon? My grandmother was the first exorcist because her head spun around and she screamed, got up from the table, told my mother and father to come in the living room. And I didn't know my mother and father could get in trouble. And all I heard her was, you know, she was yelling at them, make her call you mom and dad, make her call you, you know. And so at that point I was like, oh, I'm not supposed to do this. And I feel too comfortable. I don't want to call them mom and, and you know, dad. So When I was out in public, I would have my friends. I would say, hey, Carol, do me a favor. Can you get my mother and my father? Or I would just say, hey, you know, to get their attention. And to this day, my mom is 85 and I still call her Shirley. She sends me birthday cards and says, love, Shirley. Wow. My dad transitioned, but when he was passing, James. And so I say that to say that at six years old, I felt like, these people were my parents, but they were more of these guides. 
Like I didn't really, and I'm telling you this, like, this is what was going on in my head at six years old. And I don't know why it was going on, but I was like, yeah, I'll respect them. Yeah, I'll live with them. But yeah, we're not really. And then my brothers, as we got older, my brothers, they both have green eyes. My dad has green eyes. And I didn't have green eyes. So they would say to me, well, I don't think you're really our sister. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then my mother, I go to my mother and say, can I see my birth certificate? And she'd say, get out of here, Tracy. You can stop playing around. Go. And then my brothers would be standing off in the corner, like shrugging their shoulders, like, see, we told you, you know, she doesn't have it. <laughs> This you know, that's it, so funny because I had a similar experience growing up because my mom and my brother had straight hair and my hair looks like it comes from the motherland all the way through and through. So I would ask my mom, are you sure I'm your kid? They were lighter skin. I'm brown skin. I was, I was just and my brother would say, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> yes. That's traumatizing. It is sibling Torture. They boys love to do it. <laughs> they do that. Yeah. My brother, my brother's tortured me, and you know, I never. I think subconsciously I questioned it, but I never believed them. <laughs> but I think at six years old, something happened in my life that made me feel like you know, like like I had this armor, like I had something. I was there was something different about me in terms of school, like I went to Catholic school for 12 years. And so I would always question, like that was super catechism back then. So if you question, you didn't have faith, you'd get punished. So I was always in the corner with the dunce hat, red dunce hat with one leg up and holding a, a huge green Bible. I mean, a red Bible, because I questioned, I questioned the Immaculate Conception, I questioned purgatory, everything. So I've always been that type of person. And I think that I know that now and being older, that my mother, she's a very, 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 very strong woman. She was born in the 40s in Clark, Louisiana. And something happened with her family that she has never disclosed to us, but I feel some trauma. And she just like... She, I think in 85 years, I've seen my mother cry four times. Oh, wow. And definitely maybe five, but not a lot at all. I could definitely count and recall the incident. So, you know, and then growing up, like two generations, sharecroppers, like, and there was just an intensity that we grew up, like, we heard things like, you got to study hard. You got to be better than these white folks. You got to, like... That was something that was a constant mantra in pushing us to be better, be the best, knowing we were. So all of that, I feel like I got from her. And my dad, he was the most positive person that I ever knew. And I definitely know I am my dad's daughter. And I saw my dad angry about three or four times in my lifetime. Wow. And he was 62 when he passed. Now, where was your dad from? He was from Meridian, Mississippi. And then both of them landed in Portland, Oregon. And my dad, he was the first Black pilot back then. He was in the Air Force. And then he married my mother in Portland. And then he got transferred to Travis Air Base. And then that's when they moved to San Francisco with my brother at the time. And then I was born in San Francisco after that. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I say that because it is such an interesting 
you know, I like to go through the layers of the characters, but even, you know, in going through our characters, I feel like that's like one of the most interesting things about myself. And like I said, even after my grandmother went off, my parents still, and I felt like they were kind of scared of me, like scared to say, listen, Tracy, you have to stop it with this Shirley and James stuff. <laughs> Cause they never enforced it. I can just imagine them pillow talk saying, now, are you going to tell her to stop calling us that? Nope. See? <laughs> and my father's like, nah, nah. Let it, just let it go. It's, it's not <laughs> yeah. so and my mother, because she definitely cared about the Joneses. Well, it's not proper and she's not supposed, I just couldn't get with. And I tried. When I tell you I tried, I remember like, mom, ugh. <laughs> it doesn't work oh my no, god you're Shirley <laughs> so what sparked your interest in becoming a director and you're so close to Los Angeles what was the draws from theater or movies what was the choice or was there a choice well, yes, there was a choice. I had a globe in my room and I said, wherever I landed, that's where I'm going. Because I felt like, I felt like LA was too close. I felt like my family would visit me all the time. I felt like I wouldn't be able to really start anew and grow. So even though I felt like I would be comfortable in LA, I wanted to go to New York. I wanted four seasons. I wanted to feel winter, spring, summer, and fall instead of fog all the time and earthquakes. And culturally, I grew up culturally with Japanese people, Mexican, Samoan, Filipinos. And so culturally, there was this thing in San Francisco, but I wanted to experience Italian and Greece and Polish and Carib like Caribbean when I first got here, I was like so proud. I went to Flatbush and I called my mother and I was like, oh my God, like people speak a different language here. It's amazing. And she was like, what? I was like, I met this Jamaican woman. I didn't understand anything she said, but she sounded so beautiful. And then I was like, wait, no, Tracy, it's you. <laughs> that is amazing. You know? It was just so rich here. And then I felt like if I was going to, you know, start anew, I only knew two people when I got here and that was it. And everything else just evolved from that. So, but to look back now, like, you know, I, I would never have changed the decision I was supposed to be in here in New York. Now, how did you transition from directing to becoming a casting director? Well, I actually started out casting first. And the thing is, okay. is that when you are a casting director, you actually are directing, right? Mm -hmm. So prior to COVID, you would come in the room and you do what you prepared for. And then if that wasn't what we know the director wants, then I'm directing you in that audition. And I'm saying, okay, we're going to start over again, Monica. And this time what we're going to do is I need you to be a little more angry towards the end, right? So it evolved in the casting rooms. And then when I got on the set, I was on the road with Buster Rhymes and Eve for six years, going back and forth and on different shows. And directors started to approach me on the set, right? And, and they would say, Tracy, what do you think about this? And I was like, and I would give my ideas, right? I would just be talking. And then we were on a set, and this has nothing to do with 
Nick, Nick Cannon, Nick Cannon, I, I want you to know I'm not talking about you. <laughs> I am. Let me just say that. <laughs> Howsoever, mm-hmm. Buster and I, we were doing a film, and this was way after, like, I hadn't worked with Buster in maybe five or six years. And he did this film that Nick Cannon directed, King of the Dance Hall. And he also started it playing Buster's cousin. And we shot it in Kingston, Jamaica. And we were on the set and Nick walked over to me and he said, Tracy, what do you think? And all of a sudden there was this balloon and it said in writing, I think I should be directing if you're asking me what I think. (laughs) Mm. And that's when I made a decision that I'm going to direct. I'm just going to do it. Like, I'm going to do it. I didn't know anything about casting and I, I did my research and then I just started my own company, which is not the way, you know, you intern first and you work with a casting director, then you break off and do your own thing. I just did it. So I started writing short films and then I was working at Nickelodeon and they had this every February, they have producers, directors, and writers. I don't want to say a competition, but I guess it is. But what happens is you submit these ideas for children interstitials, which are commercials. And so I submitted five ideas and there was a very famous director that I do like, so I won't say his name, but there was a very famous director who said, if you need any help, Tracy, I'll help you. And he had a lot of his friends who he was like, Tracy, this is going to be a long shot for you because you've never directed. You don't have a reel. You've never directed for network. And I was like, yeah, but I got great ideas. So they chose two people and I was chosen. And it just lit this amazing fire inside of myself that, you know, I was proud that I didn't listen to the noise and let the noise deter me because there were other people who were like, hey, I don't know if you, uh, you know, don't get your hopes up high. And these were quote unquote friends. Mm. And so, you know, and, and I invited those friends to the premiere and the presentation. And I saw two of them in the back and I read their lips and they were like, I can't believe Tracy got this job. How did she do it? How did she do it? And it made me feel like once again, anything that you want to achieve in this life, if you see the vision, if you see the vision, that is a confirmation. It is done. You're just working backwards to get there. So here's the vision of me directing. Now I just got to make sure I understand, you know, shots and lights and blah, 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 and make sure, you know, I get a good script and I have blessed celebrity friends. I cast them. I cast my aspiring actors. I'm all the people that, you know, I know into that boom. Now I'm directing. Wow. And it's the same with inside the black box. I've had that idea for 18 years. It wasn't time. And then COVID happened. Everybody was at home and, you know, then people's attention drawn to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, which we know a plethora. When I first came here, there was Yusef Hawkins in 83 when I was here, chased Mm. in the street by a bunch of white kids in Bensonhurst. So we know the list and the history, but at that time, people were quote unquote woke. And then inside the black box, 
became relevant at that time and was a project that gave this platform for people of color to talk about their experiences in this entertainment business that's different than their white counterpart and give a voice. And we're not coming on to promote. We're not coming on to sell. We're coming on to talk our authentic truth. Yeah. And we haven't had that platform. So, you know, Roger Bob, who was the president of Tyler Perry's company, he was the first producer of the show in 2010 and or 12. And then he got a call to do Diary Mad Black Woman and never came back to New York. So never. And that was my dude. And then in 20, yeah, that's my dude. And then in 2016, I was in Atlanta, went to lunch with him, and he was like, Tracy, you should do, you should do that show you had. You should do that show. Do the show. And I came back to New York, talked to my friend Cassidy Arkins, a wonderful producer. And she took me to iHeartRadio, introduced me to this guy, Spruce Henry. Spruce said, let me tell my boss, because this is a TV show. I was like, no, it's a podcast. I'm pitching a podcast. And I went to his boss, Dr. Dave Colon, and he was like, Tracy, this is a TV show, and you're doing it. And I was like, no, I'm comfortable behind the set. I'm good. No. And then Rachel Weinthrop, who is she's the, one of the original producers of The View. We had worked on one of Oxygen's very first shows when it started with Gail King. And she was the producer and I was a talent. And it was called The Crib. And we were on this show talking about children being parent. It was a parenting show. And I was one of like one of her backup singers, so to speak. And it was another mother. <laughs> so it was, right? And that's where I first met Gail. And so then Rachel and I became cool then. And then she was having a meeting with Dr. Colin when I was in there. And she came in and I was like, oh my God, we started screaming. And then Dr. Dave was like, oh my God, you know each other? Great. Rachel, Tracy, Rachel's going to help with you develop this show. So Rachel and I would meet at iHeart once a week and, you know, talk about the show. And, you know, I like to say the bones and the structure of the show were already in place. It was just crafting it for TV, crafting it for daytime. That's where Rachel's experience comes in. And also, you know, which was really weird, grooming me as a host when I coach people in media training to be host. And Mm -hmm. it was weird in the beginning, but I adjusted. So it's all for me, it's about timing. It's about patience. I never, people said, you never gave up on your dream. Why would I? Mm. Why would I? Mm -hmm. Just because it didn't happen in year seven doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It just means you're shut. That wasn't it. And the truth, which I stand on wholeheartedly is the joy is in the journey. The destination is not what you think. You're going to get to your destination for me as selling this show or as actors getting roles. You're going to get there because you've seen the vision. However, joy is I embrace the nose because we got to know from John Legend's production company. I'm not mad at that. Mm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no comment. <laughs> you're in the right so place. When you look back, <laughs> yeah. When you look back, you're like, yo, that wasn't a bad and. Yeah, we're we're at season, we just finished season two. And, you know, people are calling, actors are calling us 
and asking us to be on the show. Actors are so grateful. We're grateful because when Joe and I do interviews, we always talk about how this show is bigger than us. Because for me, the purpose of the show is to create more workable budgets for people of color, for more people of color to be in green light positions, for more people of color to be in writing positions, to use our voice, to tell our stories, be inclusive, Mm -hmm. get more opportunities, Mm -hmm. you know? And so this is the platform in which we stand. And then the other side is to give these these actors an opportunity to showcase their talents in front of eyes that would never catch them. Mm -hmm. So for me, teaching has been, I've been teaching since I was six months pregnant with my son and he's 27 now. And teaching for me is like breath. And this is something that I choose to do. And I know that it is in the bigger picture. This is what my purpose is because I literally watched and witnessed the manifestation of my dreams and continue to. Mm -hmm. So I just use that template and presented it, you know, to the actors. So is inside the black box an evolution of the spirited actor or is it two separate entities? Well, you know, that's a great question. I would like to say that it's both. I would like to say that the actors that we have bought in thus far have been spirited actors. Mm-hmm. And we were given this platform of Inside the Black Box to showcase them. Mm-hmm. And so I always get stuck here because it's like, I want to identify them. Should they be the spirited actors? Should they be Inside the Black Box players? You know, I don't know. But I feel like the representation thus far of the spirited actors has been stellar. And so I like to just uh, have bragging rights to them. <laughs> I think you should keep it because it's your thing. And, okay. You know. It is if, done. If, if you have rocked it and you have built it out, don't sep- just keep it separate, but together. You know, it's like a marriage. Right. It's like a marriage. <laughs> it's like a so marriage. So you're a confirmation, and I'm going to go with that. You are a confirmation. Elsa, who, thank you, Elsa, for introducing me. I'm so grateful for this platform and you, Monica. Just thank you for this opportunity. But to have this opportunity to talk to you and you not know on Monday that I was working with my daughter on my website. And that was one of the things that we were talking about. And and she was like, mom, you've created the spirit actor from day one. And I was like, exactly, done. I have the spirit actor book. So this is a confirmation because you didn't know. So I'm keeping both. Because I'm going to say this, and this is sidebar, just from what, from me diving into what you have done, your level of knowledge and expertise is very unique. And you're a black woman doing it. It needs to be its own thing because you need to build out an academy for that. Oh, okay. Where do you live right now? Because I'm coming to your house. <laughs> In St. Louis. <laughs> I'm coming. And you know, Soraya, my granddaughter and I want to come to St. Louis. And I said to Soraya, I don't know if I can, you know, I don't know anybody in St. Louis, but guess what? Now I do. Now you do. So let me tell you this. Um, 20 years ago, I sat with a business manager and wrote a $10 million proposal business plan for the Spirited Actor four years accredited acting school. Spirited Actor Institute. Yeah. 
So you understand the bigger picture. And what I want to create is there are no schools that teach you how to be a casting director or an agent for a reason. Okay. So I've trained some of the best casting directors. So blessed in my life. Twinkie Bird, like Asia Jones. I, I could just, oh. And so I want the Institute not only to be an acting school and have like my actor friends, Lazalonzo or Kalita Smiths and all of these people come and teach like master classes, but I also want to have cinematography classes, camera, wardrobe, hair, makeup. How do you get into the union? And I drew out this four level building but the backyard, I want the landscape to be Japanese and I want it to be peace, like a retreat. So you go there before an audition, you go there after an audition. Like I want it to be this community of family that actors, spirited actors have accessibility, whether you've graduated or not, to this community. And also on the third floor, I had just space. So we have spaces for the classes and, and we could rent out the space. And then on the top floor, I wanted to build a theater. One is a, a black box, 99 seat, and then a bigger theater. So that we can also have like winter, spring, summer, and fall productions. It sounds like you need to go to the South and buy a school that has a theater in it with land. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Because that would house everything you needed and you can restore it and it'll be beautiful and it'll be someplace and it'll be a destination place as opposed to in New York or L.A. Right. Mm -hmm. And see, that's smart because that's why I had to write it for 10 million. Right. I was writing mm -hmm. it in New York. Mm -hmm. But to have them own the property. Oh, mm -hmm. my God. Tennessee. Oh, I love Tennessee. Tennessee would be a perfect spot because they have beautiful. Even Alabama by the Gulf Shores where the water Love is. Alabama. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's that's just, I'm going into my whole visioning thing. <laughs> no, we're doing Listen, an interview I'm about with you. to say, <laughs> we need to have a meeting once I get this season three locked in. Because a lot of my celebrity clients knew about this idea inside the black box because I've spoken to them, right? And they support me so well. But once, you know, we live in a visual business. It's what, what have you done lately? You know, let's see, right? So the thing is, is that it was interesting once season one was done and people saw it and just the awe of people in like, you actually did it. Like you've been talking, you. And so the love that's generated from that is like, what, well, now what other ideas you got, Tracy? <laughs> because- <laughs> I went to a lot of my friends and pitched this show and you know them and nothing happened. Listen, I'm going to say this. That is that six-year-old little girl that used to say James and Shirley and nobody <laughs> can defeat her. Nobody can defeat her. You know, so <laughs> nobody can defeat her. Oh my God. <laughs> Cause you're one of the, I can just imagine you with your hand on your hip at six talking about watch me work. With the uniform on. Yes. Watch a Catholic work. school uniform looking like a sailor. <laughs> looking I mean, like a sailor. With you're a challenging child. nuns and challenging yep. priests. You're sitting with a dunce hat. You're like, okay, I'm a dunce you. Watch this. Watch me work. <laughs> and Sister Anne, my first grade teacher, is still alive. 
Last year, I took my granddaughter to San Francisco. We met Miss Hannah, who is my second grade teacher. And my granddaughter said, Miss Hannah, how was grandma as a student? Was she good? And Miss Hannah said, well, she talked a lot. And thank God I didn't stop her. Thank God. (laughs) Yes, thank God she didn't stop you. So So you talked a lot about inside the black box. So can you explain to us, I know what it is because I've been watching it, but can you explain what it is? So Inside the Black Box is a show and it's an interactive show because we have an audience full of aspiring actors, working actors, and they also participate in the acting exercises that we have. But the platform is a safe space for people of color to come as actors, creative beings in this industry to tell their story, authentically tell their truth. Because for me and you and others of color, we know the experiences, we know the problems, but Joe and I would like to use this platform to focus on the solutions. And bring first, we have to bring this awareness because it this idea started with a casting call that I had. And the director said to me, a white director, when I was at MTV, he said, Tracy, can you tell that actor who was black to be more ghetto, mm. to be more urban? And then he started to snap his fingers and like be more jive, right? All, totally offbeat, totally offbeat. So I said, I don't understand what you're saying. He said, you know, Tracy, tell me to be more urban. And I said, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And I would never know how to articulate that to somebody. Because basically what you're saying is, I need you to out-black yourself. So that was really the trigger for me. Like, we need to talk about this. Because, and then, you know, there are instances where people do not think or have a filter from the thought and then filter, and then I'm the same. A lot of people don't have filters. So I would be in a meeting in a company, and so, someone would say, like, after I spoke, oh, my God, Tracy, you're so articulate. You know, you speak so well. And I'm like, well, did you expect mumbo-jumbo? Like, I'm, I'm confused. And then I would say, that's not a compliment. It's actually an insult to tell me that I speak so well and articulate my words. So. And then, you know, other friends of mine, you know, talking about one of my dear friends who I love to death. She was on season one, Darnell Martin, director extraordinaire. She wrote Cadillac Records and directed it, New Amsterdam. Her resume is ridiculous. She's also the first Black woman who ever had a studio deal ever in Hollywood with her film, I Like It Like That, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And when I called Darnell up last, two years ago to be on the show, she said, Tracy, oh God, I have to be on the show. She said, Tracy, I just got back from LA. Now, mind you, Darnell has blonde, long hair and blue eyes, but she's black. And she claims she's she's half Italian and half black. And she was one of Spike Lee's protégés. So she said she went to the studio. She had a list of five black casting directors that she wanted to work with. And she gave it to the executives and one of the executives looked at the list and he said, oh my God, I didn't know there were that many black casting directors out there. Five. 
in 2021. So she had to come on the show. She was like, I have to talk about this. We're in, back then, 2021, and you think five cast, Black casting directors? That's a lot. What? <laughs> I mean, how do you say so many and five in the same sentence, unless you're saying millions? So to be able to, and it's so powerful because part of this show really is life imitating art because there's an educational part of this show as well, right? So we had a conversation about culturally being different. And Joe was speaking about how Debbie Allen had, I mean, uh, Felicia Rashad said on our show. So explain, sidebar. Okay. It's not just Joe Johnson. It's Joe D. Morton. <laughs> award-winning. He award-winning, Mr. <laughs> Joe Morton, brother from the planet of a pope. And shame on me, because when we do interviews, I'm always Emmy. Emmy <laughs> award-winning, Joe Morton. And yes, the privilege, the honor of working with this man. But Joe talks about how Felicia Rashad said that in, in terms of human beings, we all have experience grief and hunger. We know what that feels like, but culturally we are different. And so we were on a phone call, Joe and I, and I was explaining to someone what culturally meant. And I, I started hitting my head like this, like this is the universal sign in culturally that a woman's braids are too tight. This is for black women. They're too tight, the weave, the wig, but this is what we do. In terms of the show, like there, the educational value is us teaching as well to everyone else. Yes, and and then here's the thing: it's it's important that we do all, especially in them trying to erase us. You know, when you look at what's happening with the Oscars and the Golden Globes, yes, and the educational system, they continuously try to erase us physically, not necessarily our contributions, but us physically. And it's important that everybody learns everybody's cultures. It's like when you said when I was in San Francisco, I was around Asian people. And now I'm around Caribbean and Italian people. And now you know their culture. So yeah. you you can distinguish things. Oh, that should, they didn't mean it like that. It's just a cultural thing. Right. And that, I think it shuts down a lot of ignorant conversations. Exactly. When you're like, oh, okay, that's a cultural thing. Exactly. Cultural, that's a cultural difference. That's not this. That's this. So I think it's important that you're able through your show to show people our culture. Yes. In such a magnificent way. I mean, I could have a whole nother hour just about this show because it is for me. I'm a non-actor. I'm not in the business, but I was taking notes. <laughs> oh, I was taking notes because I said this is about life. Yeah, You know, like when you, you all pull out the black box and you pull out a prop. Yeah. It's like, okay, so this is a prescription bottle. That's all that it is. It's just information. Yeah. And you have words on the page. That's just yep. information. What yep. you do with those two items there it is. is up to you. There I was is. like, shut up. This is like life class. <laughs> you know, it's funny. When I first started teaching... My first class, I had three people and then blessed, like in my fifth year, I had waiting list, but people would come to my class and they would say, oh my God, my friend told me that you're a life coach. And, you know, back in like the, you know, nineties, like 
life coach. What's that? Right. And I was like, no, I'm I'm an acting teacher. And they'd say, oh my God, people tell me you teach from the secret. And I was like, what's the secret? You know, (laughs) what I realized is that I feel like I have the best of both worlds because I, I will not admit it, but yes, I've trained at ACT in San Francisco, Pacific Conservatory of Performing Arts in Santa Maria, where I went to school with Dorian Wilson. We were the only African-Americans. And then when I came to New York, I did a couple of plays, but acting wasn't my passion. My passion has always been helping people. And that's the other thing I said at six years old. Um, my girlfriends were... We were in the playground and we're still friends, the four of us today. And Eileen yelled out, I want to be a millionaire. And I didn't know what a millionaire was, but I was like, I want to be that too. I like the sound of that, right? <laughs> and I said, I want to be like Jesus. I want to help people. And then, you know, of course, the nuns were like, ah, Tracy Blasha. You know, I got in trouble for that. But I was like, no, I don't want to be Jesus. I just want to be like Jesus and help people. And then I realized at 27 that I was doing what I wanted to do. I was helping people. And that circle came around. But I feel like, you know, inside the black box, and I always say this to Joe, it's so much bigger than what Joe and I want to go into, you know, when they say, what's next? Season three, four, five, six, 22, 23, like forever, you know? But also we want to, create this community. It's important for us to have a community because when when you're in a place, and this is what it feels like on our set, and I would love, you you have an extended invitation when we get confirmed for season three, but you can come on the set and live your life. You'll have a ball. <laughs> I'm telling you, we have so much fun. But it's an experience because we're all on the same playing field. Joe does not sit on a pedestal. He is so approachable. First season, one of the producers said, Tracy and Joe, we need you guys upstairs right after we wrapped the show. And we got upstairs and Joe and I were like, what's up? You know, and they were like, oh, nothing. We just wanted to get you away from the actors. And Joe and I was like, don't ever do that. Like, that's the whole purpose of us, you know, being here. Because Joe will stand on that set and answer questions. I will stand on that set and give tips. Like, until they say, you guys... Next show, because we shoot two shows a day in five days. So we shoot 10 shows and we have 20 games. Wow. So, you know, it's like, this is so much a part of who we are. And it's not, and Joe said the other day in the interview, he's like, Tracy always says, I don't go to work. I go to fun. And Mm. I do. I've been going to fun for so many years that I don't know what work is like. And you can feel it watching it. It is smart. It is funny. It is intriguing. I'm amazed. Like there was a young woman who was, Felicia Rashad was there. Uh, oh, Raina. Raina. She did the cold read yep. of her. The funeral. At the funeral. Yeah. I was like, how did she get there so quickly? She had me crying. And I was like, how did she, I, I would have been so, I mean, I'm not an actor, so it's not my world. And I'm sure she studied her craft. Yeah. But to be able to access that level of emotion, like in an instant, that was genius. Well, I work with Raina. She works with a couple of my friends as well. Yolanda Hunt, who is our casting director on the show, but she's also, uh, she's a casting director and teacher. So Raina you know, I was sitting on that stage and I, I kept hearing like little sniffs and I turned and Felicia Rashad was crying 
And I was like, oh, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> and then the, the first thing she said when she ended, she was like, oh my God, I made Miss Huxville cry. <laughs> but Raina, so proud. I mean, I can't even tell you how proud I was of her because that was first season. These actors didn't know what the show was about. Like, you know, we didn't, you know, do like a tutorial or anything before the show with them. They came as an audience like, oh, okay, what's up? You know, and Tracy, they knew me and Yolanda and Elsa. And so the comedy was after the first show, I've never seen anything like it in my life. People were running to their phones, going outside, going in the lobby to cancel work. Wow. To cancel work. And on top of that, our theme song was created by first season actors because they wanted to give Joe and I a gift because of what we had given them. That's beautiful. And then Joe, being a musician, Joe took them into his studio and that's where they collaborated and inside the black box. Yes. It sounds like <laughs> a chant from the 60s, honey. Yes. <laughs> it oh, is ushering in a new era. Oh, when it is the last show, we are rapping. It is a party. Keith David was, we were on the floor dancing. We put the soul train line together. <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. It was crazy. So before we get out of here, I have a couple of black girl questions I want to ask you. Sure. Because one, you're very insightful and you're very generous with your information. No problem. First, I want to know, what is your black girl magic superpower? Love. Love, that's it. It's it's just love. Beautiful. Everything is attracted to love. Everything is healed from love. And, you know, I can honestly stand in that. Mm, that is beautiful. And what is your wish for the future of Black women? <laughs> My wish for the future for Black women is to continue on this path of being bosses, owning companies. And I love when it's beyond the entertainment business, like the first Black woman who um, started her own contact lens company, techies. However, in that journey of obstacles and challenges and hurdles that instinctively and intuitively, you know that you can move through and get past. Never lose sight of the woman inside of you the person inside of you. Because for me as an acting teacher, what I find with females is that they're so aggressive. They're like, they in scenes, they'll square up on a man in Roses from Fences Monologue, which is in the 1950s. They're yelling at Troy and screaming at Troy, not understanding historically. That's now how it went down for women in the 50s. Mm -hmm. So in, in not losing the person who you are inside, there's, you know, and, and everyone has different, you know, there's different labels and, you know, people live different types of lives. And, and I don't want to disrespect any of that. But you have to know authentically who you are, whose you are, because you really need to know the whose you are to get through the challenges and the hurdles and the obstacles. And then there's such a nurturing and loving and gentle and kindness side about human beings that I believe 
women have a, a massive power. <laughs> and, yes. and I just believe that because, you know, even if you have not given birth, a woman has the ability to do that. And that's something different. We have Physiologically, something. psychologically, it's something different that we have that helps this country stand up. You know, the, there was that old saying that behind every successful man is a woman, right? No, standing right by. I'm right on the same line you are. Mm -hmm. I'm not standing behind you. Mm -mm. And not being insecure about that, but respecting and admiring that partnership or that marriage or whatever it is and, and lifting each other up. Don't lose sight of that because... Being a boss and being, you know, having to go and 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 what you're doing is creating a space that never was there. Or you, you know, um, you know, there's just or maybe hasn't been done before, and you're the one who's supposed to do it. But when you go, when you tap inside, that noise just ceases. Ah, Tracy, you should give up on the show. It's been it's been 15 years. Ah, oh, do you really think it's gonna happen? Ah, oh, I don't listen to none of that. Because that's your stuff. My stuff is, oh, we're going to have it. Yes, we're going to have it. <laughs> Chill it Worry about yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't, I don't need to have all of that. <laughs> and you know, it's beautiful. What's also on display in the show, and, I'm, and I am going to close out because I want to respect your time, is the dynamic between you and Joe. It's oh. such a balance between the two of you. There's no hierarchy between the two of you. There's no, I'm a man, I'm a woman. <laughs> There's just, we're here to teach. Yeah. We're here to, to deliver what we're supposed to deliver. Yeah. But it's beautiful to see that dynamic because we rarely see it on film. Whether it's television, streaming, movies, we always have, I'm the man of the house, the alpha thing. And he will, he lets you flutter around there and do your thing <laughs> and your beautiful dresses. <laughs> And then when it's time for him to get up and be Joe the Morton, you sit back and you just applaud him. Yes. Yeah. And it's just a beautiful thing to see. And I think that the example of that will resonate beyond what you're doing, because we do need to see the partnerships between yeah. men and women and the fact that you're co-executive directors, I mean, co-executive producers and you're co you're co 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 as opposed to this is this person, you're really doing it together in unity. And that's a beautiful thing to see. I'm so happy that you see that. And when we do interviews, that's one of the things that you guys always say to us. And we're so grateful for that. I say, Joe gives me permission to just be crazy. And so that is unapologetically. So he's just, cause when I did this, Monica, <laughs> when I did this, I was doing that in front of a whole bunch of white people. Mm. And that's why Joe was like, you know, they, you know, they were just like that, that nurse you said. Yes. Right? So but the next time they go out and, and see that, they're like, oh, her braids are too tight. Right. As opposed to what is wrong with her? She must be crazy. So the, it changes the conversation. And or they, I have a, a white friend who I love, but she will go out to her community and like she got new information. You know, so that makes her put on or with swag. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So she would say like, oh, you know, I know that that's, you know, a, a woman's braids are too tight or whatever. But anyway, we don't do. Right. I love her to death. But I would just say 
that Joe, I just feel like, and I said this to him the other day, that like I, I never, every time I think like it can't get any better with him, it does. Whether we do an interview together, whether we have conference calls, it just, it keeps elevating. And we both have such a respect and admiration for each other, but I know my position in this show. And I also know the the value and what he brings to the table. So I learned too during those shows, you know, and we're just open to create, like, there's no like, okay, you know, we make it scripts and this is my line and this is his line, but there's no like, okay, Tracy, you do this, this, you know, and Joe, no. And even last first season when we were doing all this press, what would happen is that, you know, because He's Emmy Award winning Joe Morton, people would say, you know, we're going to start with Joe. Joe, let's start with you. Joe, how did you come up with this idea? And then he's so gracious and like, it's not my idea, it's Tracy's idea, you know? And then this season, which was funny, like, you know, we do, and people would say, you know what, we're going to start with Tracy. And Joe would look at me and I, you know, through the Zoom and I'm looking at him like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, Tracy? (laughs) See, that's that black girl magic superpower. You said, oh no, we're going to change this <laughs> dynamic. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to do it. And you know what? I'm going to give you a piece of information when we finish. I'm going to give you, because I we can't announce it yet, but I'm announcing it to you so that as we get close, you can tell your audience, but I want to share that with you. Okay. Okay. So what is next before we close that? I have to know what is next for Miss Tracy Moore. Well, what I'd like next, because I feel like this is a, another chapter, is to direct full time. That's what I'd like to do. I love writing. I absolutely love. I don't mind being by myself. I, I like talking to the characters and seeing what's going on with them. But I feel like I have been for in terms of acting coaching on the best sets and with the best directors and producers in Hollywood. And I've learned a lot. And so I just want to play with my friends and, you know, just tell stories. So that is, I have some stuff that I'm writing and that I'd like to start getting actors together, reading it so that I can hear, but that is what I plan to do this year. I plan to direct. That is beautiful. So the question I have is, is one of them a story of your life or a scripted show based off your life, like Judy Smith and Scandal, maybe? (laughs) Because your life is fascinating. I wrote, like, in the early 90s was, uh, I was working on New York Undercover, which provided me a salary that I could pay my bills and my first check and then just relax and Mm. not necessarily relax, but I can write. I have more time to write. And so I wrote a film called Honest Lies, which is about me coming to New York and just the journey. Cause I was crazy. I'll tell you one story that comes to mind, but immediately when I got here, New York in the eighties was really about if you jump turnstiles, they would arrest you. And if you didn't have ID, they would arrest you. And so I, the job that I told you I got, I made $125 a week and I would clear 109. So sometimes I wouldn't get through the full week and I had a choice. 
transportation or lunch. And I always chose lunch. And then I walked four and a half hours from 12th Street and 6th Avenue to 148th in Amsterdam. So that would happen on like usually around Wednesday, Thursday is when I would need to make the trek because we got paid on Fridays. So, you know, just in terms of coming to New York and, you know, getting job right away, thank God to my friends because they were working at the furniture store. So uh, one day I didn't have transportation. So I jumped the turnstile and this police officer, this white police officer, he said, excuse me, miss. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and I had San Francisco, you know, California ID. And so he was like, can I see your ID? And I was like, I don't have any ID. I'm sorry. And, you know, I'm in a, a rush. My, my sister, she is a part of the special Olympics and we have training today. She doesn't have any legs. And so she uses, she has a, um, there's a plank on her torso with wheels and she uses her arms to, you know, run with, so to speak. Yo, this police officer looked at me and he said, either you're a really good actress <laughs> or, you know, you're telling me the truth. Right. And I was sweating because I was like, I can't go to New York jail. And I was like, no, I'm serious. No, I'm serious. He said, well, I'm going to ask you to do something for me. And this was totally inappropriate, but he was like, I want you to go to, to dinner with me. And I want you to tell me about your sister. So I was like, Hmm, I do need to eat. <laughs> <laughs> And I went, I met him at this Italian restaurant, Little Italy. And I told him about my sister. I created this. And he was like, he was just like, there's something about you. There's just something about, he was like, I really want to believe you, but I don't know, but this sounds, and this is the crazy part. After that, I never, ever saw him at that train station again. Mm. It was crazy. And, and it was so much fun. We actually had a really good time. He dropped me off. He was very nice. There was one funny thing right before we get to my house. He was like, Tracy, can I ask you a personal question? And I was like, yeah. He was like, do you smoke weed? And I was like, oh, no, no, no. I would never participate in smoking weed, right? And he leaned over to his glove compartment. He was like, too bad, because I just made a bus the other day. And he had all this <laughs> weed. <laughs> and I did. So I was like, oh, I could have bought weed for my friends. <laughs> you know, but it was crazy. Like, those are like... In my film, those are the kind of stories that are in my film that are random and bizarre like that, you know, but these are the characters and this was the journey of being here in New York. So your life will be in your movies that you create. Yeah, I'm a, you know, because, you know, my family's crazy, too. I got to expose them. <laughs> Just <laughs> what tell it all. <laughs> and then I'll say to them, it was acting. It wasn't real. <laughs> oh, it wasn't you. I just made it up. Exactly. People watch Inside the Black Box. People can watch Inside the Black Box by downloading Crackle TV app for free and then just binge on season two. Our numbers are moving up quickly and steadily. So, yes, it's it's I'm telling you, it's once you start getting into I could I literally was okay. well, let me watch one episode so I know. And then the (laughs) second one. I was like, Debbie Allen, I have to watch that. It's like two in the morning. Wait a oh. minute, Jeffrey Wright? Oh, no, I have to watch this. One uh, eye open. <laughs> Listen. Uh, wait, I want you to come season three. So once we get the official green light, I'm going to let you know. 
but the guests that are the the people that are calling us now, I mean, I'm overwhelmed. I'm like beyond grateful. So season three is going to be just as impactful as season two. It's going to be a, a great time. I really want to say thank you for your time. Aww. And sharing your stories, this has been a true joy. That's why I love oh. doing this. Because I know that there are women like you who the world doesn't see, but you have something special that you're contributing every day. Oh. And you have an open space here if you want to talk about anything else ever. I and will. I'll thank you, back. Elsa, for <laughs> connecting us. Yes. And I will definitely spread the word about Inside the black box because it is worthy to be seen and heard. Thank you again. And I appreciate your time and thank you for joining the black women amplified podcast. Thank you so much. You are so wonderful and I will do it again. Anytime. Definitely have a great and amazing day. You too. Thank you. Monica. Thank you for listening to black women amplified. We hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to subscribe and log on to blackwomenamplified.com for more information. Keep shining. Keep shining.